the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. Yes, and I want to welcome you to a Monday edition of Lifeline like no other. There is no other day like this day. Won't ever be one either. Um, June 24th, 2019, exactly 5.04 p.m. in the evening. And yours truly is back on the air at the Attila Dehun with you for the next two hours. The number here is one 888 Three six seven five three two nine. We call it Lifeline, where we talk about issues, spiritual, practical, theological, social, personal, psychological, etc. You know how we do it. We just try to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before God of mercy and grace, and uh, and interpret our world and, and get a grip on uh, where we are, and and uh, try to do it together. And again, I want to welcome you to this Monday edition of Lifeline. I'm back, back, been gone for a while. A uh, couple, three or four weeks seems like uh, forever, but um, yeah, I've come from an arduous and uh, very much needed and productive vacancy of our, uh, well, shall you say, normal habitation called home. Yes, I and uh, the missus have been, uh, we've been just kind of tripping, that's all, just tripping hither and yon and uh, and enjoying ourselves, and so one of the questions that a lot of the saints were asking me at church yesterday um, was, are you refreshed, Pastor? Do you feel like, you know, you've, you've been rejuvenated, et cetera, et cetera? And the answer is no. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily um, I wasn't necessarily exhausted when I left. I wasn't uh, worn out. I wasn't, you know, just frazzled. You don't have to always be exhausted to have to go on a vacation. Uh, but vacations are very productive. They're very beneficial. And uh, ours was uh, really a kind of excursion, if you will. Barbara and I have been walking over the last three or four weeks, uh, streets and hills and traversing the sites of a lot of the common names in Europe that you know, Paris and, and Rome and Italy and London and Barcelona and Marti, Monte Carlo and some of the most famous names of uh, cities in Paris, France and London, if you will, Liverpool, uh, a lot of places that I can't even um, fully express now, but uh we uh we we almost walked everywhere we went i my wife a good friend good couple friend of ours al and gwen henry who happen to be elders and leaders in our church as well we spent three three weeks in europe which uh which was prepared by our wives uh, barbara and gwen they basically laid out the excursion and uh three weeks of almost almost non stop 
um, travel. But we did it by way of a cruise. I must admit that they call it the Celebrity Cruise, one of the top line celebrity cruises um, uh, that's out there. There are a bunch of them out there, as you guys know. If you are cruisers, you know, and Celebrity is called the, um, forget what it was, uh, just a big boat, brand new. They say, I think it just came out for a year, a couple, two, three thousand people on it. Um, a wonderful time, really was. It was uh, it was invigorating. It was challenging. It was extremely educational. That's the part that I would even dare to take up some time on the air to talk about in terms of the redemptive benefits, the uh, spiritual benefits, the historical benefits. Of course, when you go to a region of the world like Rome, you are in the heart of uh, historic Christianity, if you will, in terms of uh, in apostolic influence, largely Peter and Paul, and uh, the development of the church uh, in terms of apostolic uh, influence for the first six, seven, eight hundred years. And then it takes off and is completely immersed in largely a Roman Catholic history, which is uh, something that is essential as well on a historical level. Um, so, yeah, we covered all of the sites, uh, Notre Dame's uh, Basilica that uh, burned recently a couple of months ago. We were there and we saw it in its rebuilding for, uh, phase course we went to the vatican we spent three days unpacking deconstructing analyzing all of the absolutely phenomenal artwork and intricate uh historical uh illusions drawn out of the artwork and the voluminous voluminous uh uh collection of uh of of artifacts and uh iconography and uh and and statues of everything that really uh speaks to our history our world uh particularly pre Christ era on up to like I said about the uh uh well actually broader than that it would even get past Charlemagne the period of time which uh there was a break between the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church which we call the great division but th- if you go to Rome for the purpose of really being informed on a historical level uh you you you've got a lot to learn it will actually help you get a grip on what many of our faithful conservative scholars have written about in terms of history and so while the misses uh every day that occurred uh, took my hand and pointed to a hill and said let's walk that hill or said oh that building has steps on it let's let's walk up to the top of uh, that building whatever building it was and we did several uh, St. Peter's Basilica has six, 600 steps to the top of its dome and domes are significant around the world if you know in terms of uh, battles won, wars engaged in, land staked out and kingdoms established and um so where did we go what did we do how did we how did we deal with it we we covered all kinds of towers i don't know if you would know what towers are uh but towers in uh, the 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 uh, the west the roman area the areas of france and paris etc uh they are places where kings or or monarchs or emperors had dominated lands and when they uh, made their triumphal entrance into the city the people lauded them and, and marked the territory in which they uh, triumphantly entered into to different cities and regions and uh, and made their mark so in paris we went to a place called the arc arc of the trump not donald trump the 
<laughs> French way in saying uh, triumph is Trump, the Ark of the Trump. It was a beautiful place, and we walked its stairs to the top and began to see how they marked out France. France is a beautiful city. I'd encourage you to go. If you've never been there, uh, a lot of very insightful ways in which they structured their uh, their their um, highways and their streets and their transportation for you to be able to go hither and yon and some of the different places in France if you uh, want to uh, see some of the landmarks. Just beautiful. Uh, one of the things I I will say about that trip, because I was listening to the news today, particularly concerning Paris, didn't know that Paris is under a warning right now for a major heat wave of a weather of over 103, 4, 5, and 8 degrees. Um, They've already had several people who have died from heat strokes, and the uh, humidity is significant, too. Uh, When we were there, we, we had some humidity that almost felt like the South here in the United States. But the weather was impeccable every day, even though they had suspected and prognosticated rain on several days. So we brought warm clothing, didn't need it at all. You could dress in a T-shirt and shorts and go everywhere all the way up to about eight or nine o'clock because, you know, as you are nearer the equator, the sun doesn't go down till at least nine, nine thirty. And I mean, really down in a way where it begins to get dark. So virtually everywhere that we went, we had great days, great, great days. A tip for you uh, tripsters, though, if you're going to do trips around the world, I'm going to give you a tip right now because I will share with you some of the insights that I have uh, while you call and say hello. Say you you missed uh, PJ uh, and you might have a a question or a comment or observation. We can get our dialogue going on. Glad to be ready to do that. But here's a a trip for you, uh, a tip for you tripsters. If you are going to do foreign countries. Learn some of the language. Learn some of the language. You will be received much better if you learn some of the language and not assume that every country has to, ought to, or even want to speak English. Okay? So the world doesn't center on America. There's a lot of liberals, a lot of folks who have traversed the world, a lot of folks who have a metropolitan uh, worldview will tell you the world does not revolve around America. I will say something extremely positive about it here shortly, but the world does not revolve around America. If you go to Rome, if you go to Italy, if you go to Barcelona, if you go to Napoli, if you go to Palma de Mallorca, if you go to, again, the Monte Carlo and Montego, if you go to any of these places, if you go to France, uh, you better be able to go bonjour uh, and be able to have phrases that know how to ask certain questions and get certain answers because they respect you much more when you uh, acknowledge their language. Merci beaucoup. You know, you must know how to talk a little bit of French, a little bit of Spanish, which is almost like our uh, uh, Espanol uh, Latino language, almost a little bit different, but uh, but it, it's 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 not that hard if you just own your way to Europe. If uh, if your airline allows you to do internet, just Google ten most common things to say when you get to France. Ten most common things to say when you get to Rome. Ten most common things that you uh, want to be able to say when you get to Italy, and it will open doors for you. Because I myself 
neglected these rules I'm giving you. Uh, but fortunately, my precious wife was uh, much more uh, erudite and prepared. And uh, she uh, was able to carve out a path for us to interact and dialogue with people when we got in trouble in terms of directions and, and things of that nature. They're looking at me crazy, and she's able to speak the language, and they go, oh, madame. And, uh, and, and off we <laughs> went. Um, so I'm definitely wanna let, I want to let you know, be careful to make sure that you can say hi and ask the question, where is the baño, abeno, abano? Please make sure you know how to do that. Where's your restroom? Where's the restaurante? Where is the restaurant? Where is the transient station? You want to be able to say all, a lot of that is um, uh, a transl- transliteration from English as well. So some of the terms you'll be able to identify. Um, and say, and they'll help you, but don't ever go to a country not prepared to learn something of the basic greeting terms and fundamental questions. Just do yourself a favor, because when you go as a foreigner and you act like a foreigner, they're going to treat you like a foreigner. And the easiest way to make you feel uncomfortable is for them to quickly let you know they don't understand at all what you're saying and they ain't got time for you. (laughs) So, So hurry up and overcome that. And as I said, the weather... Was great, um, but I have never ever smoked as much in my life as I did when I was in Rome and France, Italy, Barcelona, and all of the uh, again common places, even the Vatican. Talk about that a little bit. Um, never smoked so much in my life, and I don't smoke, but because smoking is accepted virtually everywhere. In that part of the world, you are inhaling secondhand smoke as if you you might as well be smoking yourself. OK, that was the part of the trip that I said, Lord, have mercy on me, because I remember years ago. I don't know. I'm dating myself now, but I remember years ago before we had some of the more rigid smoking laws here in America. Thank you, Lord, for um, allowing us to be much more sensible about smoke and smoking and secondhand smoke, et cetera, and all that. Because if you were like I was growing up as a child, I inherited both culturally and probably genetically um, allergies and asthma, not bronchitis. I mean, full blown asthma and nothing would trigger my allergic reaction like cigarette smoke. And it dawned on me about a day or two into France uh, where they smoked. I mean, men, women, that wasn't, you know, no young people, old people, people just smoked. And it just took me back to when I was five or six years old and, and felt the mucus rising up in my lungs. You know what I'm saying? And you, you, you got a little gargle going and you, you just want to hawk and spit. And I'm like, where'd that come from? Well, it's the smoke. We had one hotel. It was so strange. My wife is so sharp with a lot of her senses. Um, we're sitting in the hotel and she's got the fan going super cold and blowing at high speed. I don't even have no hair on my head and the hair on my head was going backwards. Um, and I'm like, what, what's with that? And she said, don't you see the smoke in this room? And I took a position where she was and looked through the light and lo and behold, smoke coming up from the different rooms into our, um, into our little, um, hotel apartment. And I'm like, boy, is this the way that it is? Well, it is the way that it was some 20, 30 years ago. If you guys recall, smoking was accepted. It was the norm. It was the cool thing to do, if you will. And um, 
And I'm very much glad that in many places in America, it is off limits to people who are not volunteering to be in that atmosphere. I could tell you stories about how it impacted uh, my elder Al, too, but I won't. Uh, like I said, we uh, we had great weather. We climbed quite a few towers. Uh, basilicas galore in, in Rome, Italy, Paris, churches everywhere, historic churches. We went to Pompeii. We saw the, the complete ruins of Pompeii and the excavation that's taking place there and, and the historic uh, connotation that led to uh, how that place was just completely wiped out by uh, a, um, a uh, volcano that you could see the hill upon which that volcano erupted in the year AD 79, if you will, and completely immersed that whole city Pompeii and now they are uh, removing the ashes and we even saw many of the skeletal remains that were just petrified by it uh, encased and uh, visibly seen in the uh, in the um, in the area where Pompeii is visited today. Yeah, we did the pizza, the leaning tower of pizza. Only 300 steps. <laughs> My wife loving steps. Let's go. OK, bring your water. We walk into the top. It was cool. Not super impressive. I mean, you know, I exercise a little bit, but but it was cool. You 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 could definitely tell you were in a leaning building. OK, uh, but that's done. OK, so there's a bunch more things I can talk to you about. Uh, but you know how we do on radio. We have to take a break. Um, I do want to appeal to you to call uh, and let's interact. If you have questions, if you have comments and observations about what's been going on over the last three weeks, I'd love to hear from you. If you have some real pressing issues, you know, I'm PJ. I'm the one that uh, talks to you about these things that cover the spectrum of our life as a pastor and as a friend and as a radio host. Looking forward to doing that. The number is one 367 5329 one Don't touch that dial. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back at the time, 526 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. The number one 888 Three six seven five three two nine one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Back in the Attila Dehun is yours truly, Jesse Gistan. After many weeks of uh, vacation uh, and uh, sharing with you before we went to the break, some of the uh, uh, glorious. Uh, workings of God historically in uh, in in in, in uh, the trip that we had to Rome and Italy and uh, France and uh, Barcelona and places uh, that are historically relevant, particularly to those of us who are Christians. We did some catacombs. You guys know what those are. Those are places where people are buried underground. Um, largely, it was a Christian type thing that took place. Uh, several hundred years after uh, the cross of Christ, after the church was established. Uh, Often you'll hear in your history books that it was largely out of duress and uh, the need for Christians to hide from persecution, etc. There was some of that, but largely, no, it wasn't. it wasn't the consequent of uh, a kind of Neroan or Domitian persecution that that dog Christians for four or five hundred years. That just was not the case. Uh, when you are there and when you talk to those who lived there, you understand that catacombs were uh, really convenient opportunities on the part of landowners to um, make sure that loved ones stayed in their own community uh, and uh, could be buried on their own premises and on their own plot. 
lots and uh, on their own land. It did have a a monetary connotation to it, very much like we do with um, with our plots today. Uh, many of you guys know the term "rolling hills," and many of you guys will will know. Uh, you know, um, uh, let's see here, Chapel of the Chimes and uh, places like that where they have much territory by which to bury people. Uh, well, back in the day, the way that it was done was not above board or uh, with people being placed in caskets, but rather wrapped and then just placed in portions of the ground that were conveniently carved out for that size person. And from what uh, many of the uh, tour guides were saying as they took us through many of the catacombs uh, was that uh, people in Rome uh, during the era in which catacombs were prominent, whether Christian or not, uh, were only of a statute of about five foot one to five foot four on an average, men, men and women. And so uh, making a portion of ground, carving out a portion of ground somewhere between uh, two, three meters deep, that would be something like um, as deep as. Let's see, uh, 6, 12, 15 feet, if you will, 20 feet, because we went down deep. Uh, you could store whole families in a uh, convenient size uh, catacomb uh, grouping. Uh, that would be very practical. And so a lot of the catacombs uh, had had that uh, fundamental and practical benefit. But we did, however, visit one absolutely impressive basilica that had the remains of uh, Christians and uh, friars and uh, ministers and uh, saints, if you will, who had been persecuted and, and, uh, and killed or who had fled from persecution hiding in catacombs and uh, I I can't remember now this particular uh, church this particular basilica it will come back at some point but it was filled with a history that basically underscored the um, the persecutory nature of the witness of Christianity at that time and how that many of the martyrs uh, who were in catacombs uh, were discovered by the church uh, tens of hundreds of years later, and their bones were removed and placed in in several, but particularly one basilica where you could just um, imagine, see, and observe and witness up close the skull remains, total skull remains of men, women, and children, fragments that were ornately designed and put together in order to tell a very rich story of a life of faith and a life of uh, persecution and a life of witness uh, during that time. This all goes to show you something about how biblical truth really does prevail, even in an extremely secular world, if you ask me. For instance, while um, while my friends and my wife were definitely just enjoying just the the data information that was going on in this particular uh, uh, church, we they would call it a basilica, uh, where the uh, bones had been gathered uh, and reconstructed and organized in a prioritized way, where uh, the martyrs were and the the people were. One of the things I recognized was how important principally the Bible speaks of bones. If you guys remember, uh, Joseph wanted to make sure that his bones were brought to Jerusalem, to the promised land where he could be buried with his people. And so um, uh, what was of note that was extremely significant to me 
uh, on a theological level, because uh, like our present world, to be honest with you, our present American pseudo Christian nation. As is the case with Europe, if you really want to start pressing into the character and attitude of the people, Rome is just as secular today as it was in the days of Paul and as it was in the days of Peter and as it was in the days of the Lord Jesus, who himself had to experience the spear of a Roman soldier. The point, the thrust as it pierced his side, though he had already expired, Um, just as secular today as it was then. Just as secular uh, today as it was then. However, one of the things they admitted truly, and this will speak to a point that I want to make concerning those of you who feel free, like you can, you know, die any kind of way you want to. And uh, if you were just uh, dispense of your body any kind of way you want to. Uh, One of the tour guides made it very plain. Christians never, ever remotely contemplated cremation until recently. And this is during the time in which we were dealing with the catacombs. And when you have recovered tens of thousands of bones of professing believers and martyrs, etc., all organized so that you can have a story from the beginning of the Basilica to the end of the Basilica before you go into the catacombs, a historiography, if you will, of the life and uh, sufferings and the the death of, of, of believers and how they viewed death and how they viewed the resurrection. No one had a frivolous view of death who actually knew what the Bible taught concerning the centrality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That when he purchased us, redeemed us, bought us back, ransomed us as children of the living God, paid by the blood price of the son of the living God. Please hear me now. No one even remotely contemplated leaving the witness of their death by ashes in a furnace called cremation. That's a completely new thing that has no theological justification behind it. No theological premise behind it and certainly no theological testimony behind it. I've been arguing this for a long time and and it's kind of precarious because, you know, I have to bury people and uh, I got to take a break. But when I come back, I'll talk a little bit more about why cremation is one of those secular leaks. Those earthly, worldly, carnal, secular, convenient leaks that is poured into the body politic of professing Christians today. And it's indicative that you don't know church history, that you don't know biblical theology around how we are to bear witness to the hope of the resurrection by virtue of burial. Um, I'll talk more about it when I come back on the other side of the break. I've got three lines open, one 888 Three lines open, one 888 To bury or to burn? Which one glorifies God most since you've been bought with a price? Three lines open. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. So we're back the time, 538, on the Monday edition of Lifeline, talking to you about one of our excursions in Rome and how that uh, the history of catacombs does teach us something today about the precious understanding of the people of God back in the first century AD, second century AD, third century AD, and uh, and a few centuries hence. 
as I stated, one of the tour guides made it very plain, not professing to be a Christian whatsoever. In fact, it was sort of indicative by the way this young man spoke um, that he was basically an academiac, not really professing to be a Christian. He was making sure that he right, rightly represented the historic Christian view on the topic of uh, the origins and uh, pragmatic nature of catacombs. Uh, but he did make the, the very clear statement in order uh, to make it clear, uh, make an emphasis that Christians never, ever once contemplated what was commonly practiced all the way back, way before uh, Christ's day, way back during the time of even uh, the Jewish people, way back during the times of even Moses, 1500 years B.C., uh, burning, cremation. Uh, the consummation of bones through the conflagration of fire, uh, which occurs in most of your pagan religions. And here we are today. We do it uh, without any thought of it whatsoever. And frequently when there are honest Christians who really want to know how to best glorify God in the context of the passing of a loved one, uh, they ask me, Pastor, which one is recommended? And I would say if they are a believer in Christ— uh, they are obligated to follow their Lord in death in the manner and form in which not only did it have its precedent in the Old Testament. Remember, there were sepulchers in the Old Testament carved out holes in either mountains or in valleys or uh, on lands and properties of a private nature where people could be uh, placed in the earth in those sepulchers. It would be equivalent to uh, to today's crypts uh, or mausoleums that we have today as well, uh, well, whereas catacombs are deeper into the ground. When you and I use coffins and we put people into the grounds, we are half catacombing them because catacomb means to bury underneath, to place in the ground, kata, underneath, kum, tomb in the ground. But they did not have the encasing of a a coffin to protect their bodies uh, in the elaborate process in which we do it today, of which I state uh, I have absolutely no problem with uh, the um, rather rather elaborate way in which uh, funerals have been uh, engaged in over the many centuries in America that we've done it and we are doing it around the world. Because one of the questions you're going to have to ask my, my brothers and sisters as we work through what it means to be owned by God and bought by Christ and under the complete supervision of the Spirit of God is what does it mean to glorify God in our bodies, which are his, according to 1 Corinthians 6, uh, very easily uh, found in 1 Corinthians 6 in the latter part of that chapter. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. When do we glorify God in our bodies? Do we do it at our birth? Yes. When our children are born, we ought to glorify God for having given us children. Children are an inheritance from the Lord. They are the, uh, the, the Lord's children. They are the, uh, the arrows in the quiver of a husband and a wife. All the fruit of the womb is the Lord's. We acknowledge that, that God gives us children. He's the source of all life, even though he uses the mechanism of a man and woman in conjugation. Children are from the Lord. And therefore, we seek to raise them up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. As believers, we live a life 
indicative of the fact that we are redeemed people. We are no longer in darkness. We are walking in light. We are no longer ignorant. We are knowledgeable men and women according to the word of the living God. We are no longer without guides. We have a whole history of guides, of patterns and principles and and imperatives and indicatives in the scriptures and in uh, living testimonies of believers who actually live honorably before God. By the way, I can tell you now, one of the greatest benefits to the life of any Christian are other more mature believers than yourselves who have gotten a better handle on what the word of God has taught concerning how to live out the witness of the gospel in our world. And the reason I say that is because the way truth is preserved historically is both by the texts of scripture and the life of the people of God. So that history is always mingled with the testimonial of God's authoritative word and the life testimonial of the people of God. This hints as we're talking about catacombs, I have swerved into a theological topic that I know those of you who are listening are um, paying close attention to. Because you know presently today that the goal of the enemy is to mar the expectation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by a process that really is identical with pagan religions and uh, secularism and not biblical history or biblical precedent or biblical testimonies. Hence, the tour guide said it was never even thought of by the Christians to to cremate, to burn. It's a symbol of uh, eternal punishment, eternal judgment. It's what Nebuchadnezzar did when he took three Hebrew boys and cast them into a fiery furnace. So, yes, you know what's going on today uh, is we're being more pragmatic than we are being theologically testimonial. When our loved one dies who are believers in Christ, we aren't thinking, Lord, how can you be glorified in their death? We're thinking, how much money can we save? That has no Christian ethic behind it at all. We're making the assumption that there is no redemptive value whatsoever in the death of a believer. That is an utter fallacy. One of the sermons that I love preaching when I preach funerals, because I love preaching the gospel, is Psalm 115, which says, uh, Psalm 116, which says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of all his saints. And I explain how that when the Lord says the believer is precious, it's because he was chosen in Christ. He was called into this world. He was protected by God's providence. Then he was quickened by the gospel. And then he was conformed to the image of Christ so that he lived out a witness. And when he died, he died for the glory of God. And God now gets to take that precious sheep, that precious seed, that precious child of his and bring him to glory. And he does it in a way that when people look upon the death of a loved one who has lived well for God, They then understand Isaiah chapter 57, verse 1, that the righteous are taken away, removed from the world, so that people might consider the evil that is coming behind them. And much more, uh, when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus eagerly sought for our Lord to take him and to bury him in an honorable way in a borrowed tomb that was not our Lord's, but to do it in a way to paradigm the much anticipated three-day event of his death, burial, and what? Resurrection. The church understood that this is the pattern to follow. 
But today we don't. And today we won't. Because we want to take the few uh, of those dollars that we can get and put them in our pocket. And, and what a vanity. What a vanity. You have a great opportunity when a loved one, when a believer dies. You have a great opportunity to actually preach the gospel when that body is in the casket, well taken care of, if a mortuary has the skill set to do it, to remind the people that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and that that body, that's, that body also will be resurrected on the last day, even as Christ was raised on the third day. And the promise of that is inherent in the preservation process by which we take to give people that last opportunity to see the body of our loved one before it's placed in the ground as a seed sown into the ground. There will be a day in which that seed will blossom into a uh, infinitely, infinitely other manifestation of resurrection glory. And the saints used to rejoice today. It's protocol. You get a memorial, get a picture. You talk about them. But the body means nothing because we're much more Gnostic today, docetistic today. Uh, we have a, a dualism theology today where it's all about the spirit and not about the body. And that's not Christianity. All right, I got to take another break. Uh, two lines open, one 367 When I come back from the break, I'll go to your calls. But I do have two lines open, one 367 Love to hear from you. Be right back. And now back to Lifeline. Again, we're back at the time 550. Two lines open, one 367 I guess I slid into the theological question as to how will you honor God when you bury your loved one who professes to be a believer in Christ? And how will you honor God when you are buried um, professing to be a believer in Christ? It certainly is incumbent upon you and I to prepare for our death. Would you not agree with that? One of the other things that I discovered many, many years ago as a believer is that uh, as as convenient as our nation is with all of its technology and all of its resources and and opportunities, many, many professing Christians are extremely slothful, negligent, if you will, in preparing to die and making sure that the burden of their uh, death does not lie on their family members. This, too, is a shameful thing, to be honest with you, that you and I would be so neglectful to uh, take care of our final days. We had this in our health seminar a couple months ago, a couple speakers talking about the importance of preparing to uh, die, to transition, to leave this world and not leaving the burden on your loved ones. Because it often happens that way where the loved ones have to scramble and gather money. And and uh, in some cases, because they are so poverty stricken in that urgency, they they succumb to um, to cremation because it's one of the cheapest forms, albeit because it's becoming popular today, it's in increasing more and more in cost as well. So the cost factor is almost um, a germane fact, uh, not as germane, rather, as as is the question, how will you and I glorify God in our deaths? All right, I do have two lines open, but I'm going to go to line number two, line number two, and speak to Ellen from San Mateo. Ellen, are you there? Yes, I am. What's your question, comment, or observation? Well, just Quickly, I know there are people waiting. Um, I just want to say uh, I, I appreciate so much. I'm not physically able or financially to take a trip, but boy, that was a blessing to go on that trip with you and your wife and, and your friends. I mean, that was just magnificent. And leave it to you to segue into something that is so crucial. 
and I boy have I missed you, uh, Pastor Jesse. But but this is, this is what I wanted to talk about. Sure. You're talking about how in Europe there's everyone it's, they're so secular, and and boy are you right on about the cremation and and just the. the uh, to save a few bucks, uh, uh, Christian, Christians just don't take take. It's not biblical, so they don't take it seriously. But I have a question unrelated. And you you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. No, I will. That's you called, and if you, you know this, Ellen, that a lot of people listen, but very few people call, and, and a lot of times they're intimidated about calling. That's just the way talk radio goes, and so I'm always appreciative when people call. What would be your question off well, topic? Let me just uh, respond to that, Pastor Jesse, because if the other people are like me, sometimes I don't call because I could just listen to you for ten hours. Okay. And so I don't even wise like I don't want to even interrupt him because he's so fabulous. But anyway, I did, and so I'll ask my question. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a question um, in the news, and I don't want to get into politics or anything. But they're they're working on a uh, some kind of agreement with uh, 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 Israel and, and uh, Jordan and Egypt. Right. This piece. Okay, you know the news right sure. today. Okay. So my question to you, um, Pastor Jesse, I'm so excited you're back. I can't even tell. I'm thrilled you went. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> but so my question to you is, my first thought, and of course you know it, it might be a really good thing for the Palestinians, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from a, uh, you know, uh, in this world kind of view. But then I started thinking, wait a minute, uh, in the end times they talk about there will be kind of a peace between, in the Middle East. And so my question to you is, how do we know uh, if something sounds like something that that's part of the end times, or whether it's unrelated, you know, I mean, it, it talks about there'll be a, uh, a, I don't know if it's the Antichrist who's going to do it, but there'll be kind of a, a, a someone will come with a peace plan sure. for the Middle East. So, uh, so how do you make that determination? I mean, I'm the world is so evil and secular. I think I'm hoping <laughs> that that the you know rapture will come soon. But anyway, that's my question. Right, a very uh, a very germane question relative to where we are in our culture today. Being a Christian now for uh, some forty years, I. Um, I basically was brought up, Ellen, in a context in which eschatology, end time studies, Adventism was really the kind of, uh, uh, it was a beeline to an education that I had to have in order to kind of get a handle on what was really an obscuring of the central message of the gospel. This was during the 70s and 80s, late great planet Earth, Tim LaHaye's left behind, and just a litany of Bible teachers talking about the end time. And unfortunately, a lot of it had much more to do with popularity and making money than it did with accurate prophetic um, uh, exegesis and interpretation of Scripture as I began to study the many eschatological views, end time views. And one of them is around a covenant being made for seven years and in the middle of the seven years breaking that covenant coming out of Daniel chapter uh, 9, verses 24 through 27. And it's always an assumption that it's a kind of diabolical entity called the prince or the antichrist who would take on a political figure uh, position and be a, a world peacemaker. He will bring peace into the world. And then after a few years uh, in some kind of uh, mystical way, break out in a cataclysm of judgments uh, around the world, starting from uh, the, the areas of Jerusalem and Palestine. Well, 
I get it that many Christians who have fed on that kind of diet of eschatology would immediately be concerned when after all these years that you and I have been living on the planet, the Middle East has been just rife with conflict, 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 Israel with Palestine, Palestine with Israel, uh, Iraq and Babylon and, 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 and Syria and all of that, you know, as, as the scriptures would depict that that area would be in a constant turmoil. Christ, the ultimate and final prophet, made that very clear in Matthew 24. There will be wars and rumors of wars even unto the end and see to it that you be not troubled. And then he did warn there will there There would come false Christ and false prophets who would say, peace, peace. Uh, But then sudden destruction would come. This is Christ and the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And so Christians are a little bit alarmed right now as to what would be indicative of a period of peace in the Middle East, particularly uh, with regards to surrounding Israel. Would that automatically indicate that we are moving into an end time scenario? And the answer is no. And the reason why is that we, if we understand history well, there have been many periods of temporary and tranquil peace with Israel and its neighbors uh, throughout even the New Testament era. So I'm saying that I would not be moved if somehow there was a temporary uh, policy that brought about some kind of working arrangement between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. For me, this is what I will say, and then I'll have to let you go. Uh, I would want them to be at peace. I would want the Palestinians and the Jews to be able to coexist together in the same space, even as I believe the true and living God would have had it that way from the Old Testament up to now. I don't have time to develop it, but God never, ever, never, ever uh, meant for Israel to be an apartheid nation. He never meant for the church to promote or to endorse apartheid. He never meant for the church to behave in a fashion in the world where we are the head and people are the tail and we are the greater nation and people are the lesser nation. He never meant for that to be the case. And when Christ came and laid the uh, the, the the level to Jerusalem and laid the level to the rulers and said that he was the savior of all men, they were utterly offended by that because they just felt like, you know, Messiah is coming to straighten out things and put the Jews on top and make everybody else aboard to them. That was an eschatological view that is specious, and I think it's very much an error. Uh, Having said that, I think the goal of the gospel is that we would actually be able to establish peace with our neighbors with the prospect of the gospel permeating their lives and them coming to know the true and the living God. And finally, that would be what is needed for the Jews as well as the Palestinians, because the Jews, by and large, still are unconverted, do not know Christ need Christ as bad as the Gentiles. And if somehow they could work out policies where they could get along, um, then maybe they can begin to have dialogues, not as one group hating the other and seeing them as inhuman and animals and beasts. Because if you really get the news of what's going on in Jerusalem with the hostilities between the two, um, it, it it will unnerve you as a believer. You would know that the spirit of Christ is not... In any of that. So with that long, long uh, commentary on it, my hope is that 
The Palestinians do not continue to be marginalized, do not continue to be uh, viewed as animals, do not continue to experience the apartheid that uh, my African brothers in South Africa had to experience for many years and the apartheid that poor people have had to experience by superior people throughout human history. Um, I'm hoping that they can have a kind of peace that will allow the gospel to prevail at some point. That's that's my hope. Thanks for the call. Got to take a break. When I come back, I'll get a hold of Mark and uh, Randolph as well. Two lines open, one 367 Two lines open, one 367 You can tell that I don't hold to the common view of premillennial dispensational theology in the way in which most of it is proffered, even by very good men. Um, so, yeah, I'm open to talk about that, too. I'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.